Good evening, and uh, welcome to the second in this year's series of Label Lectures in Psychiatry. I'm extremely pleased again to welcome Professor Essie Veeding, who will be continuing her lectures on the topic of developmental risk and resilience, the challenge of translating multi-level data to concrete interventions. Um, so I will pick up from where we left uh, yesterday and the yesterday's lecture uh, looked at development of conduct problems and uh, looked at how these can be studied in different levels of analysis in different subgroups of children with conduct problems. And this lecture showed us how we can differentiate uh, children within a behavioural diagnostic category but it also highlighted the challenges of uh, integrating multi-level data when we try and understand the emergence of mental ill health. And in this lecture I am picking up this theme again and really trying to further highlight what the challenges are in integrating multi-level data across development. <coughs> So not only is it difficult when we look at it cross-sectionally, but when you try and understand how mental ill health emerges, we have additional um, complications that emerge. I also want to highlight how individuals can act as agents in creating their own environments. So we often try and understand environmental risk factors and how they impact different levels of analysis, such as expressions of genes, or development of certain patterns of thought and functioning. But environment is not just something that blindly happens to us. People are also active agents in creating their own environments in multiple different ways, and this is something I want to try and highlight. I also want to pick up um, the notion that some of the disordered patterns of thought and behaviour that we see may represent reasonable adaptations to certain environmental circumstances that may serve the individual well in those particular circumstances but may make it more difficult for the individual to function in wider society. And I also want to talk about the challenge of translating from research to clinic. So we do these studies that help us understand individual differences or group differences, but what can these studies tell us that is meaningful when we meet an individual child or adult in a clinical setting? And I will start with talking about the uh, difficulty in trying to understand emergence of mental ill health using multiple levels of analyses in a developmentally sensitive context. Any individual's developmental trajectory is an emergent project, uh, product of the interplay between the different levels of analysis such as genetic, neural, cognitive and behavioural. And we only have a limited understanding at each level of analysis. So the sheer scale of what we don't yet know um, becomes ever more apparent when we try and think about these different levels of analysis across development. And I want to illustrate some studies in these different levels of analyses um, to show that although there is a big challenge ahead, there is also some very exciting new data that are emerging that give us hope uh, that we are slowly uh, putting together 
to pieces of uh, jigsaw puzzle. For example, we can use genetically informative longitudinal study designs to help us understand what contributes to individual differences in initial risk for symptomatology and also in risk trajectories. And such studies can help us constrain subsequent research and they can also provide clues that may be uh, clinically relevant. For example, we can use uh, twin study designs to understand the origins of uh, why behaviour initially emerges and why it may be maintained. And research led by Jean-Baptiste Pingol, who used to work in our group, uh, looked at development of ADHD symptoms over early childhood to adolescence. And his findings suggested a number of interesting avenues for further investigation. For instance, he found that the genetic influences that um, influence the intercept and slope of the ADHD symptoms, so influence the emergence of these symptoms and their maintenance, were partially independent. So there were clearly some new genetic influences that came into play and were important in determining the developmental <coughs> trajectory of the ADHD symptoms. He also found that genetic influences were of primary importance in explaining continuity and developmental trajectories of the ADHD symptoms and that the environmental influences were of less importance. Finally, he also found that environmental influences at different time points were partially independent as well. And this has some implications when we think about, for instance, risk and protective environmental factors. If we want to try and put into place protective environmental factors, these may need to be repeated and they may need to be different at different points of development in order to have an impact on behaviour. We can complement analyses at this genetic level by looking at longitudinal neuroimaging data. And this can provide alternative pieces to the puzzle as to what drives initial risk and what explains different trajectories uh, in disordered development. And as an example of this sort of study, uh, I want to draw your attention to Philip Shaw's work, who's done some very elegant work on longitudinal structural brain development in both typical and disordered uh, populations. And one of the studies of his looked at uh, the longitudinal development of uh, cortical thickness in typically developing children and also in children who had high levels of ADHD symptoms. And what he found was that compared with the typically developing children, the children with ADHD showed relative cortical thinning in a number of brain regions that are important for attentional control. He also found that the children who had the worst outcomes had a specific fixed thinning of the left medial prefrontal cortex, which he thought could explain their compromised attentional uh, control and could also hamper clinical improvement in these children. But interestingly, there were children with ADHD whose symptoms at least partially resolved. And those children showed normalization of the parietal cortical thickness compared uh, to the typically developing children. So they approached the typically developing children in their cortical development in this particular um, 
brain region, which these authors interpreted as compensatory cortical chains. Now, the outstanding question that we have is, of course, to what extent these sorts of compensatory cortical changes, if they are that, reflect the impact of uh, developmental genetic or environmental inputs. But if you want to extrapolate from the data that uh, JB has reported, you might expect that it's likely that there are possibly some genetic effects that come online over development and explain individual differences in these develop brain developmental trajectories. Now, in the previous slides, I've given examples of longitudinal work in genetic and neural levels of analysis. Um, and this work is very exciting, but there is considerable challenge of bringing together these different levels of analysis. And this challenge gets more complicated uh, when we also think about combining it with the different environmental contexts in which the development takes place. And as an example, we can think about studying the impact of adversity on neural development. It may matter, for instance, at what point in the development we measure adversity. And Susan Anderson and her colleagues have looked at the impact of childhood sexual abuse on regional brain development, and they found that depending on at which age bracket this abuse took place, the impact on brain structure was quite different. So if the child sexual abuse occurred very early on, um, the area that was maximally impacted was the hippocampus, whereas if it occurred later on in life, it was more likely to impact on the development of frontal cortex. And this highlights the fact that different brain regions are likely to have their own unique sensitive periods or windows of vulnerability uh, to the effects of the environmental risk. And that is another further complication when we try and understand emergence of mental ill health. Different environmental factors are also likely to be more or less important at different stages in development. So for very young children, the primary caregivers are obviously the people who give them uh, very important environmental inputs. In adolescence, uh, it may be that it's peers who are most important in impacting uh, some of the aspects of the development of your social brain networks, for instance. So we know, for instance, that adolescents are incredibly worried about what other people think about them, how they appear to other people, are they cool, are they accepted? Um, and clearly, um, in infancy, that is less of a worry. So, Little babies don't worry about what other babies think about their romper suits, uh, but they are clearly mindful of their caregiver's behaviour. And that is the environmental context <coughs> that is likely to have more of an impact on their brain development. So as we study development across early childhood to adulthood, we have a very complex task ahead of us in combining information from multiple levels of analysis in trying to understand how these different levels of analysis interact uh, with each other and how they are shaped by environmental risk and that environmental risk may have very different impact depending on the stage of development. This consideration of environment also brings me to the next part of the talk 
which is highlighting the importance of thinking about individuals as agents in creating their own environments. And this is a phenomenon known as gene-environment correlation. So what we often think of as environmental variants and what social scientists in particular traditionally view as environmental variants may actually be partly driven by genetic vulnerabilities. Both children and also the adults who interact with them show substantial heritable individual differences in their social information processing capacities and in their behaviour. And this clearly impacts upon how the children behave and what they best respond to. And it impacts upon how the adults behave and how the adults, for instance, react to the child that they are bringing up or interacting with. And in typical biological families, the parents and children share genetic vulnerabilities and also uh, genetically driven uh, protective uh, characteristics. And because this is true, some of the associations that we see between parenting and child outcomes may be epiphenomenon of family level genetic risk rather than a direct causal influence of parenting to the child behaviour. So if you have a parent who's biologically at risk of being antisocial, that parent, in terms of their personality and temperament, will be less capable of giving consistent boundaries, uh, reinforcing good behaviour and reacting appropriately uh, by regulating their emotions when the child is being particularly difficult or oppositional. That parent passes on that genetic vulnerability to the child who will be more difficult, more demanding and more oppositional than a child who has a lesser genetic risk for developing antisocial behaviour. And you may see parenting behaviours that are erratic, um, harsh or inconsistent and you may see child antisocial behaviour but you cannot conclude that the child antisocial behaviour is a direct result of those parenting practices if you do not rule out the genetic confounds. And there will be um, a, probably a, a wider exposition of this tomorrow when Sarah Jaffe is giving her talk on uh, gene environment correlation. There are also other ways in which the genetics can impact the environment. So individuals' heritable behaviours can evoke responses in the environment. This is what we know as evocative gene environment correlation. And different patterns of behaviour in a child can evoke remarkably different reactions in the same adult. And anyone who has more than one child knows that there is a hefty dose of genetics in how that child behaves. So here's my daughter, who is incredibly delightful. You can uh, go and do almost anything with her, take her anywhere. And here is my son, <laughs> after I've told him that he's not allowed to watch his favourite television program. And that went on for a sufficiently long time for me to pick up my camera and take the photo, and it still didn't finish. And at a point where I had not yet had my second child, I felt extremely smug about my parenting skills. And when he came along, I felt less smug about my parenting skills. And although my parenting values don't change when I interact with my daughter versus interacting with my son, my parenting strategies change because they are two very different individuals. They evoke very different degrees of frustration in me. 
and require very different degrees of emotion regulation when I interact with them. And this has been shown officially in a number of adoption studies that have measured the biological parents' trait and then measured the environment in the adoptive family. So, for instance, if you have a biological parent who have high, has high levels of antisocial behaviour, they will have a child who is at higher risk uh, genetically for having difficult temperament. And in adoptive families, that child receives more punitive and harsh parenting than a child whose biological parents did not have antisocial uh, behaviour. So this is illustration that if you have a genetic predisposition to antisocial behaviour, you will evoke more harsh parenting, less optimal parenting reactions, even in parents who are not biologically related to you and who are presumably highly motivated to undertake the parenting task because they have undergone the adoption process. The final form of gene environment correlation is active gene environment correlation, which really refers to the tendency for people to actively seek out environments that reinforce their genotypic disposition. And this form of gene environment correlation may increase in adolescence and early adulthood as the individuals become more independent and are increasingly able to select a range of environments that, that are in line with their uh, genetic predisposition. And this has been shown, for instance, for children who are at risk for antisocial behaviour, selecting more delinquent peer groups. So I'm hoping that these slides have illustrated to you that environment is not just something that happens to us in a passive way. Individuals create, select and modify their own environments. And this has implications uh, when we think about um, both understanding development and also when we think about interventions. Given that the parents and children share genetic vulnerabilities, this may restrict the range of possible social inputs that happen over development. So to the extent that the parent's sensitive mirroring of the child, for instance, is important for the child's emotional development, if the parent is genetically vulnerable to have a more restricted range of emotional displays and more inconsistent responding to the child's needs, and if the child is also perhaps genetically vulnerable um, with the same kinds of qualities, the parent-child interaction is going to take on a very different quality than it is in families where both the parents and the children are perhaps more well um, adapted. We also must consider that some of these vulnerabilities may undermine the parent's capacity to respond to the needs of the child. And when we think about clinical formulation, we may need to think whether in certain families we need to consider modified delivery models that take into account some of the challenges that are inherent in those family ecologies. I will next talk about environment in a slightly different way. So I want to talk about the extent to which some of the information processing biases that we may see which are associated with certain disorders, may represent adaptation to certain environmental contexts 
and engender then latent vulnerability to psychiatric disorders as a result, because those processing biases, while helpful in the child's immediate social ecology, may not be so helpful when they're trying to function in the wider world. So to what extent do certain patterns of thinking and behaviour reflect understandable adaptations to environment? Uh, so if we think, for instance, the ability to exercise self-control when faced with rewards, as is measured in the famous marshmallow task, for instance, to what extent is that an inherent predisposition, to what extent might that be an adaptation to an environment? And those of you who are not familiar with the marshmallow test, this is a very well-used workhorse of in developmental psychopathology. A child is given a marshmallow and the experimenter then leaves a room and the child is told that they can either eat the marshmallow straight away or if they wait a certain period of time, then the experimenter will give them two or four marshmallows. So if they can delay their gratification, they get more goodies. And your ability to delay gratification in this task has been shown to reliably predict educational attainment, self-regulatory capacities in adulthood and externalising problems. So it seems to be a sort of an indicator of uh, your ability to really regulate your approach behaviours uh, in order to achieve some greater good later on. However, even in the earlier stages of this research, Walter Michel, who devised this test, um, maintained that the expectations matter in this sort of test. So what you expect the outcome to be will influence your behaviour in this test. And this was very nicely demonstrated in a paper a few years ago, where the experimenters manipulated the degree to which the person who was dealing with the child was trustworthy or not. So the children met the experimenter before they did the marshmallow test and they were doing a little activity with the experimenter and they were told that if you finish the activity you will get a really nice reward in the end. And half the children got a very nice reward and the other children had the experimenter tell them, oh, I think I mislaid the goodies. Anyway, here are some broken crayons, you can have them. So in other words, they had a really, really crap prize. And the children who got the very nice reward were able to wait much longer in the marshmallow task and more reliably than the children who didn't get what they expected from the experimenter. And what the author said is that wait times on sustained delay of gratification tasks, e.g. the marshmallow test, may not only reflect differences in self-control abilities, but may also reflect beliefs about the stability of the world. And if you think about the kind of families uh, where there are less resources and where the, where the parents may have more mental health problems themselves, the child is likely to grow up in an environment that is more unpredictable. And if you then take that child from that environment to do a test like a marshmallow test, it might be a perfectly rational thing to do, to eat the goodies before someone grabs them or before they don't deliver on their promise. So an organism may reasonably adapt to certain environmental contingencies, but this adaptation may not always be optimal in longer term. And this is a concept that uh, Eamon and I have been interested in for a few years, and we term it latent vulnerability. 
We think that individuals who experience childhood adversity may adapt to these adverse environments because that is important for their survival, but that this adaptation may confer a cost which makes them more vulnerable to mental health problems later in life. So if you grow up in an adverse environment, multiple systems are likely to be recalibrated to fit with adverse environments. So you may uh, have a very different calibration for your reward learning in that sort of environment. It may be useful to pay attention to certain stimuli in those sorts of environments because that is important for your safety. And these sorts of adaptations may not be immediately accompanied by symptoms of a disorder, but it may make the child more vulnerable to future stresses and less able to negotiate some uh, future stresses. And I'm going to use uh, the impact of maltreatment and domestic violence on threat appraisal as an example of this concept. So we know from uh, decades of research that children who are exposed to physical maltreatment have an altered processing of angry faces. They're able to more accurately identify angry facial expressions using sparse perceptual information than their peers are. They devote more attentional resources to processing angry faces. And this pattern of uh, behavioural performance is interpreted as increased hypervigilance threat, which makes sense if you grow up in an environment where there are unpredictable adults who have temper outbursts. We studied children who had grown up in this sort of environment uh, some five years ago now. And we showed them uh, pictures of angry adult faces um, and neutral faces and also uh, sad faces in the scanner. And specific to angry faces, we observed both increased right amygdala reactivity, so this is the brain region that is, is reacting to salient stimuli in the environment, but also increased reactivity of bilateral anterior insula to angry faces. An anterior insula is a brain region that uh, says dense connections with a number of cortical and subcortical regions, including the amygdala. Uh, so it's well placed to integrate emotional and sensory information uh, to guide social processing, to guide effective decision making, and it's also involved in anticipation of pain. Now, we think that exposure to the family violence may recalibrate the responsiveness of these brain regions uh, to processing of potential threat. It makes sense to pay attention if you grow up in an environment where threat is regularly present. Um, interestingly, we know that uh, adults who have anxiety disorders also have this kind of neural signature to threat. But our children did not have increased rates of anxiety disorders. So we think this may be a latent vulnerability signature which may later on in life manifest as increased risk of developing anxiety symptoms and we're currently following some of these children up longitudinally to see if that's the case. We have converging evidence uh, regarding threat reactivity also at the epigenetic level. So this is work that has been read by, led by Charlotte Cecil and uh, we've looked at epigenetic signatures of different types of early adversity. And there are a lot of common epigenetic signatures, but specific to physical abuse, 
varies epigenetic signatures that signal stress and threat reactivity. So genes that are important in fear response, that are important in uh, heart rate regulation, for instance, are specifically implicated uh, following physical abuse. So that at a different level of analysis, we also see this adaptation to threat, if you like. And when we think about latent vulnerability, we might also think about inherent latent vulnerability that is introduced by genotypic individual differences. And we have to date some very good data suggesting that there are genetically driven individual differences in threat responsiveness that represent biologically driven latent vulnerability. And it may be, and it's very likely, that it's a combination of this sort of genetic risk and the environmental adversity that really represents the most potent latent vulnerability to later psychiatric problems. And again, there are implications for considering these sorts of findings. Currently, most of our resources, or all of our resources really in clinical um, settings, are focused on treating manifest clinical disorders. Um, but this theory of latent vulnerability proposes that we should maybe think about a shift towards preventative psychiatry model, uh, which is in line with what's currently underway in relation um, to physical health. And there clearly needs to be a lot of work still to operationalize this. So how do we best measure latent vulnerability? Um, how can we think about uh, helping children in promoting their resilience? And how can that be done in a way that is also ethically feasible and doesn't introduce labeling, for instance? So in the last part of the talk, I am very briefly going to consider the challenge of translating from research into the clinic settings. So can this sort of individual differences and group data inform the treatment of a single individual? Well, clearly increasing mechanistic understanding of development of mental ill health can reduce our problem space, but it doesn't really trivially translate into a treatment cookbook to a single individual. It's very unlikely that we can map the precise developmental trajectory across multiple levels of analysis for a single individual. I think we're unlikely to have the data available to do it, and there will more than likely be kind of stochastic factors that are idiosyncratic to some people and not common to everyone else that make uh, it's complicated to really try and fully understand how any single individual has arrived at an outcome where they are at. But I would argue that although it's not possible to translate from a model to the optimal in intervention for a single individual, if we improve the mechanistic understanding, we will reduce the problem space. So we can take more educated guesses in a clinical practice in relation to a single individual. So it's not a cookbook, but it will hopefully improve clinical formulation and clinical hypothesis testing in relation to individual clients. So for instance, we can think about uh, the fact that some people seem to be more responsive to rewards than other people. Why is that? Might that be due to their developmental history, for instance? We can try and systematically study to what extent our processing biases 
and so the behaviour is malleable. Are there sensitive uh, periods? And I think intervention studies uh, that Nick Steinweiss will hopefully be covering a little bit of tomorrow um, will be a very nice way of testing this in a very systematic fashion. So when we study behaviour as it occurs in the natural world and risk factors and protective factors as they occur in a natural world, we obviously have very little or no control over them. Whereas in the intervention settings, we can really try and systematically deliver an input and see the impact of that input, whether it varies at different time periods or in different social contexts, for instance, and whether those sorts of interventions shift patterns of thinking, for instance, or whether they are a compensatory mechanism. I think we also um, need to, in treatment setting, think about why the child has developed in the way they have, for instance. Why are they having these information processing biases? And are they still currently living in a kind of social ecology where those biases are useful? And if they are, we may need to be sensitive to that context before we march in with a certain kind of intervention. So, I think we have long and exciting uh, road of research ahead of us, those of us who are researchers, so we're not going to be out of job anytime soon. And it will be very challenging to bring together these levels of analysis, but not impossible. I also think that some of this work in integrating the different levels of analysis will only happen when the individual fields have developed a little bit further and it will be more feasible to combine um, the levels of analysis. So, for instance, I mentioned yesterday that currently the genetic studies that are being done usually involve hundreds of thousands of individuals. That's not feasible to do in a neuroimaging setting, for instance. So we may have to find many more genes and have better sets of polygenic risk scores before we try and understand the impact of genetic polymorphisms on brain development. On the other hand, just blindly recruiting really huge sample sizes when we already know that those samples are going to involve heterogeneous sets of individuals is not uh, the only solution either. So we do need the better mechanistic understanding, the better way of phenotyping the individuals to aid the gene discovery as well. I don't know where that animation came from. <laughs> So I will conclude by saying that mental ill health remains a major burden for the individual and the society and to date we've been relatively poor in developing effective interventions. And as a result uh, of the challenges of combining the different levels of analysis, we have a fragmented view of how mental health disorders emerge and we have limited insight into the active ingredients that may be critical for or limit treatment success. And in order to advance, I would say that we need to understand mechanisms that are causally implicated in the pathogenesis of a disorder within the developmental context. We need to better understand how the individuals shape and adapt to their environments in ways that may both potentiate and protect against mental ill health. And we need to get better at understanding mechanisms of resilience and I think that there's a lot of promise in doing that work because we can more readily control the kind of environmental inputs 
uh, that we test when we try and understand what may promote resilience. I'm going to close here by acknowledging participants in our studies, uh, by people who work in our group, in particular Amy McCrory who leads the group with me, uh, our collaborators and our funders, and I'm very happy to take questions. <laughs>